Okay, it looks like we're live now. Thank you, uh, thank you all for joining us for our webinar today on trauma chaplaincy. We were just talking in our, uh, our little preparatory conversation that we're seeing chaplains kind of at all stages of the, of the professional day. Uh, one is in the office, one is in the classroom, and the other is, is literally on the road. I hope you're not driving, but, but uh, no, no, <laughs> <laughs> literally on the road doing the work of chaplaincy. So this is just such an interesting uh, picture already. Joining us today uh, is Mishka Smith, who is a, um, a chaplain in the emergency department at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago. She's also an ordained itinerant elder in the African Methodist Episcopal Church and a member of Rush's emergency management preparedness team. You do a lot of things. I'm out of breath just after describing your job, Mishka. Um, <laughs> Glenn, who is in the classroom down in Indianapolis, is an ACPE supervisor. He has been a fire chaplain, a trauma chaplain, a psych chaplain at IU Health, and also deploys with the American Red Cross's uh, disaster spiritual care teams. And then finally, on the road, is Eric Skidmore, who is a chaplain with the South Carolina Law Enforcement Assistance Program. Uh, so all of them are doing uh, trauma work in various different settings. And, you know, some of the themes of our webinars aren't necessarily as uh, obvious of, of how the chaplains come together, but I would imagine that for, for all of you, it's very clear that, that the, what you're working with every day uh, is trauma, that, that you are always dealing with crisis in some way. Uh, so just to kick off the conversation, let me ask all of you how you ended up doing the work that you do. Uh, Mishka, why don't you get us started just because you're the first one on my screen and then we can go from there. Well, actually, um, how I began is I was introduced uh, to chaplaincy from a personal experience that I had um, as a patient. Um, and so I was in seminary at the time. I knew that I did not want to do pastoral ministry. Um, in a um, in a parish context um, and so I began to have conversations with the chaplain who would come by and visit when I was um, in care at a hospital um, I began to do some uh, work through seminary with uh, some uh, senior um, thesis work and also some um, exploratory um, investigations with certain organizations and to see where chaplaincy could fit outside of the context of parish ministry and that began to get my wheels spinning and then that's how I was introduced to wanting to pursue education in uh, chaplaincy and seeking out a CPE program as an intern to really kind of flush out some of that other exploratory and inquisitiveness that I had and then to uh, pursue it with two residencies afterwards. That's really interesting. And we hear that a lot, you know, in many cases, chaplains began their careers because they had an encounter with another chaplain in this, you know, it sets off an entire series of events. That, that's fantastic. Thank you. Glenn, um, how did you end up sitting on a table in a classroom in Indianapolis? Well, that, let me just tell you, because you asked Mishka about getting started, I think that that's an interesting piece for me. I was in a parish situation with 500 members and the chief of the fire department came in and said, um, uh, Reverend, I think we need a chaplain. And I said, okay, but I'm not just a prayer person. He said, good, because we need you to drive the engine during the week. 
So Saturday morning I met him and he told me if I didn't get it in fourth gear, and it was a 12 gear, eight wheel drive tanker engine, if I didn't get it in fourth gear by the time I stopped, started up the mountain, I wouldn't make it to the top. Well, in that community, they really ended up needing some help because we had five fire fatalities in the community in that week. And volunteer fire departments are magnificent at doing their things on the street but the effect that it has on them afterwards, what put me into the whole idea of trauma ministry, uh, whether it was in the hospital or not. And as I was talking with Mishka, then when I became uh, a, a supervisor and I was supervising students who wanted to work in the institution in the emergency room, I said, you need to know what happens to families before they even get here. So they rode out with me as a firefighter. Well, that, that's how I got here. And I've been teaching students ever since. Well, I, I you know, of uh, the things that I need to know how to do to do my job, driving a, you know, <laughs> a fire tanker is not one of them. Uh, and I'm going to hope it never gets on the list. But if it does, I guess I'll have to learn how to do that. <laughs> but doing that put me in with those people because yeah. I became one of their peers rather than some guy that comes around and does prayers. Absolutely. 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 Uh, and, and Eric, I would imagine that you are in the thick of things as well. So uh, please tell us about your uh, your background as well. Sure. I uh, I'm sorry. I'm in the car. I'm uh, traveling from Florence, South Carolina, back to Columbia. We had some follow up work. We had seven officers shot in an incident about a month or so ago, and we're still following up. Um, anyway, I uh, was serving a parish uh, right out of seminary and. Uh, Became, was recruited, the chief of the state police uh, was worshiping there. He was actually uh, 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 from a church in another city, and uh, he uh, recruited me as a volunteer um, in 1993, and um, um, that led to some, just some uh, uh, simple volunteer experiences with the state police and then I became a part of a small team that was writing a uh, grant under the Victims of Crime Act. And uh, when the, it was all just a, just a pipe dream until actually the grant was granted and that same chief said, I want you to apply for this job. Um, so uh, that was uh, 21 years ago. Um, I started in 97. So I went from a volunteer position to the creation of a statewide program. You know, it occurs to me that the three of you, in terms of just the, the abstract responsibilities of what you do, that you kind of all come up against each other. If Eric or Glenn is responding to a disaster site, someone's going to be in the emergency department probably. Yes. And whether yes. there is a chaplain there or not, who knows? But in, in your all's experience, how has that handoff gone? You know, are, do you typically, you know, are people going to the hospital and, and you're confident that there is not going to be a chaplain there? Or do you know if there will be one? And, and how does that transition happen? I should speak a little bit to that, only to start by saying the nurses in my trauma center, we were a level one trauma center, could look at me when I came in the door. If I was wearing gear, I was coming in with civilians' injuries. If I was pushing a cart, I had a patient that I had picked up at a site. 
if I came down in my chaplain coat, then they knew I was coming down because I was called by the emergency department. So they always had to figure out which role I was in on a given day or moment. So I think that the issue that I would like us to think about is how do we fit into a team? Because I would never recommend anybody doing trauma that, that does it all by themselves. So the handoff, you get to know the people on the street if you're the chaplain in the institution. And Mishka can do a lot with that. He knows about that, I think. The other piece of it is, though, is you begin, they begin to trust you when you're coming in with civilian casualties to fill them in about what you've already got going with the family and you can tr transfer it to them. And I think that is a, a team process. Yeah, definitely. Um, what Glenn is talking about, um, in the context that I'm in, and when I was doing a, a residency at a level one trauma, Rush is not a level one trauma, we're a level two. Um, and so um, when I was doing a, chap a residency at a level one trauma, um, that handoff from other um, if, whether it be police chaplain who might come in if there was an incident that involved police um, or if there was something else that was happening in the city at the time and there was a need for that particular chaplain to come in if someone had been injured from one of the other um, municipalities or uh, services um, or first responders that come in that had a chaplain on staff, there would be that handoff. There would be that seeking out of that person if that person was going to be coming to the hospital to find out what had already been done on site who was coming to um, the hospital and what other care could we do as a team, not in silo, because again, I'm not part of their group. And so I am leaning on um, the person who is part of their group to introduce me to build that trust and to let them know that I am someone who is also um, concerned about their their care, concerned about um, their spiritual care, their emotional care, their psychological care, um, and their physical care, and that I'm going to be working in tandem with this other entity, this other person, this other chaplain, and we're going to support the entire team. And so it is not done in a silo when there is a, an episode that happens that way, and that's the best way to do that wraparound service of care where you bring all of the persons who are involved, whether it be social work or um, child life specialists or psychologists or psychiatry, psychiatry and chaplaincy and really do the wraparound care so that you can um, give the services that are necessary for the victim. Um, for the family members and also for the staff and um, the uh, co-workers of that particular person as well. And so definitely. Um, I'd, I'd add to the uh, conversation um, uh, the perspective of a, cha a law enforcement chaplain and almost every time I'm in the hospital it's not dealing with uh, civilians but it's dealing with injured police officers and um, part of the handoff with me is um, a discovering are they from a department um, that has their own public safety chaplaincy attached to it and then also do they have a clergy person of their own or do they have uh, does a hospital where they are have a chaplain and sometimes all three of those entities will show up in the same place 
um, along with us. So I always say whether it's in that setting or in an in-service setting, our office never supplants the, the uh, clergy person in your life. We want to support you in the way that uh, is appropriate. Um, but there is uh, some of that detective work to do to figure out who are their supporters uh, offering the same kind of services we do. It strikes me that that is particularly important and maybe, maybe I'm blowing it up in my mind to, to bigger than it is. But Glenn, when you're deploying in a disaster area, I would assume that, that at least some of those people have a spiritual community of some sort, whether it is formal through a parish or a congregation or informal. Um, how do you jump into that situation when you come in from the outside and say, I'm here to provide spiritual care, but maybe they have a parish um, or, or maybe they, they are not people of faith whatsoever. And they say, well, what, what are you here? What are you doing for me? Um, how does that interaction play out? Well, Eric referred to it a little bit because say what, this is the question I hear you asking. Let me just clarify that is not, when I'm in the institution of the trauma center in my hospital, but when I'm on a disaster center. It seems to me the very first thing that you, you have to do is you have to find out what the, um, the demographics of that community are and then who has, um, 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 who will people trust in that community? And in that community, when they are contacted then we will make them a part of the team that was particularly true on our Red Cross task force yesterday we were talking about the shootings at Pittsburgh you really need to get some Jewish rabbis and some Jewish spiritual care assistance if not do the actual work to be your consultants in the process well in at, at the same time that you are coming into a situation where you have the people you're trying to serve on one hand and then their other networks on the other. Um, what we have, we have circled around a couple of different communities here that we haven't addressed specifically. And that is all of you are entering into situations where people are playing different roles. So Mishka, if someone comes into the emergency department, there is the person that has a medical emergency, but then they have family. Uh, Glenn, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Eric, you're responding to uh, an officer shooting. And so you have law enforcement officers, the people that have been uh, injured. You may have civilians, you may have law enforcement families. And Glenn, I'm sure that there are just all kinds of people if you were in a disaster situation. How do you, I don't know if I wanna say the word prioritize because that makes some people sound less important, but how do you tailor what you are doing to those different groups? You know, Do you have to decide, I'm just gonna help that I have to put all my energy into this person and I'll deal with them as I can. Or do you spread yourself as thin as you can? I would like to use the word there, uh, triage is because, yes. because triage would be what are the immediate needs that have to be met? And it may, may, it may not be spiritual, but it may be spiritual. Somebody needs last rites or something uh, of that uh, 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 kind of help. But the issue would be who are the people that are uh, really in dire need or their lives are threatened, same as the triage and trauma center, and who are the walking wounded that you can provide comfort to but you don't have to do something for first. I think triage is really important here. 
And I would echo that. Triage is um, the most important thing. Canvassing the entire room to see what is needed and then looking to who might be able to help. You talked about families bringing someone in. There might be family members that can help console other family members while you attend to that person who needs the most care, the most attention. You can employ that support from a variety of different um, aspects of help or assistance, or again, bringing someone else in. If there is um, a social worker that's in the environment, which I have, uh, there are social workers in our emergency department. If there's a need that they can attend to, that there's a question that a family member has or a question that the patient might have, then I can bring that person in while I attend to um, some of the other more emergent needs of um, the person who's experienced the trauma um, or um, uh, any staff member. And I can kind of assess and triage where I'm needed the most and then employ my support and care with that particular person or persons, depending upon the size of the group um, and who's there. Again, we talked about people having clergy members that might show up as well. I can employ the assistance of their clergy um, because again, they have a personal relationship with them. And so I can take their lead. Um, I can have a private conversation with that particular clergy person and say, hey, how can I support you as you support this family? Um, how can um, I be best utilized so that everyone has been touched or seen or their, um, their emergent need uh, for comfort and compassion and care has been addressed. Eric, I want to give you a chance to respond, but Mishka, I'm just going to tell you that we've lost your video. So yeah, <laughs> if, if there's something you want to do while Eric is talking, uh, wh whatever is possible, but if it doesn't come back, that's fine. Okay. Uh, there she is. Hey. I, can, I can see her. I can see her now too. Perfect. Um, so uh, let me let me respond this way. Um, it, I, I never uh, I never will end up in the uh, hospital uh, if it's a hospital setting without some being officially deployed there in some way. Um, so my the chief of of my agency or the colonel of the highway patrol or a sheriff or a chief will say, come help us uh, in this situation. Um, and if, if I'm officially deployed, I'll, I'll uh, really have the mission of connecting with the agency. Um, it, it really, it is like a detective process when you get to the hospital, figuring out who the caregivers are say in an officer involved shooting does this sheriff's office have a cadre of five or 30 chaplains um, does the hospital have a chaplaincy staff does the family have a clergy uh, connection um, and I'm, I'm very uh, uh, cautious and deliberate as I go through that process um, but I'll, I won't be there in the first place without some sort of official invitation to be there. Yeah, that, 
that check-in that check-in process um, again with um, families and with uh, support for the family is essential. Um, again, just for instance, uh, if there were a police officer coming into our emergency department, um, they know the family. They know um, all of the intimate details of that particular officer um, or first responder um, that is coming in. And so they may have made phone calls in the field that I don't know anything about. So that investigative work of checking in with that reporting officer or the lead officer or the chief or the chaplain, whoever is the most senior person that's coming into the emergency department, that's supporting that unit, that district, that precinct, I'm gonna check in with them to find out what they've already done and to get names and relationships so that I can have a greater understanding of who's coming in and who's going to need support and how we're going to provide whatever that care is for not only the person, again, who's the patient, but also the family and the support team that's there. Um, and how are we going to triage all of that in the midst of other traumas, other events coming into the hospital? Um, and then there's also me employing the assistance of the other chaplains who are here um, at Rush, um, employing those teams of people if I need additional assistance down in the emergency department, depending upon how big um, that uh, event might be. I like what both Mishka and Eric are suggesting and your question suggests. We, we all learn that in the time of the disaster or the emergency, who we can put on the team and who we need to help do something else. We all learn that. But I like to think about the, what, I learned that in my other family, that is the fire department. You do pre-planning on what's gonna happen in any given critical incident so that you are, you know the people, you know the other people that are coming in, you know what your resources are. And so when I'm not doing a trauma or when I'm sitting with students, like if I have a parish pastor who's not going to be in a hospital, he's going to be in a parish, I say, what conversations have you had in your community with mental health responders? Do you know who the police chaplains are in your community? Do you know who the other helpers are? Where is the mental health center? I don't know. I said, call them up and go have lunch or go talk to them. Proper pre-planning, and I hear Eric and Mishka referring to that, and so that's the piece I'm adding to that is, when you're not doing the trauma, work on it ahead of time. Right, and, and Michael, when you introduced me, you told me that I, uh, you introduced me as one of the members of the emergency uh, management preparedness team here at Rush. That's that pre-planning. We have a group of um, persons who are designated from a variety of different disciplines throughout the hospital where we run through tabletop drills with various different scenarios that might happen um, where there might be some pandemic, there might be some uh, mass tra uh, trauma event, um, and we run through and see who is um, needed, where they're needed, and what um, spaces are needed in order to accommodate um, a casualty surge that comes into the emergency department. How are we going to set up auxiliary spaces and who is available um, at a particular point in time to come and provide those services, chaplaincy services, and again, other wraparound and support services, and how are we going to address all of the particular needs, whether they be for the patients that are coming in or um, have experienced that traumatic event, 
or again, family members that are going to come to the facility looking to see if their loved one is here. Um, and then also that next um, ring of persons who would come just to um, garner um, uh, community support. How are we going to support them? Are we, how are we going to introduce any type of rituals that they might want to have to support whatever that traumatic event has occurred? And so that pre-planning, those tabletop drills, those um, incident scenarios that we run through are very important and imperative so that we know who the team is and um, how we can employ um, the services that we have. I'm gonna ask you a little bit of a, of a curveball here because we've been talking about all of the strategies you use when you come into a situation, the things that you're thinking about, the questions that you ask yourself, how you triage, how you pre-plan. But when the rubber hits the road, let's say you're, you're, you respond, if you either respond to a scene or someone comes into the emergency department and they say, I don't wanna see a chaplain or I'm not a religious or spiritual person or I am this denomination or faith and you are not, and so why are we talking? Does the interaction end there or are there other ways to provide spiritual care? Um, there are other ways to provide uh, spiritual care. Um, I had an incident recently in the uh, emergency department where I had a patient. I, did, I was just doing round visits um, and I knocked on the door and introduced myself as the chaplain <clears throat> and part of the support team here at Rush. And that was that uh, patient's response was, I'm not religious, I don't need a chaplain. And so I then def deferred to hospitality. Um, are you comfortable? Do you need a, a warm blanket? Um, is there anything that you, that you need right now? Um, do you need to see your nurse? Um, have you gotten the answers that you need? And deferring to hospitality begins to open up conversation that's not um, based in religion um, and not based in necessarily spirituality. Um, and actually, I began to provide support, come to find out that particular patient was having difficulty getting in contact with their family. And that's how I assisted um, that patient. I found the phone number where they were trying to search for this particular person who was actually at another hospital. Um, and uh, we called and found that family member. Um, there was something in her chart that she needed access to, and so I was able to get that for her and come back and provide that support for her. Um, and that began another conversation that was just about her support circle, which again, that was chaplaincy um, in effect, but it had, it had in her mind nothing to do with spirituality or religion. I was being kind and that's part of chaplaincy. And so that's how that door was open was hospitality. What is it that you need? It's not what I'm coming and presenting myself as, but how can I address what you need right now? And that was to reach out to her support circle. So that's what I did. Glenn, Eric, is this not, is this an issue? Uh, I can, I can see it going either way uh, in, those, in those intense places that you find yourself. Well, it not only occurs to me that that happens with patients and their families and civilians, but once in a while, you'll have a firefighter that I have been called to the scene and then go to the hospital where they've been transported. 
and their family who feels like the department itself did not take care of that person does not want to see anybody from the fire department in sight they don't want to see a uniform anywhere around them now, and there's where mishka's wisdom was very helpful who do find out who do they want around them who is comfortable for them to have if you provide that service the other may or may not fall in place but we've taken care of what they need not what i need to do um I'd, I'd respond this way. Um, I think about uh, incidents that we've been involved in very recently. And, and so often um, what our chaplains are involved with is a kind of a team approach to ministry. So if you show up on the scene or you show up in the hospital or I've just come from a briefing um, and it's not only the chaplain, but it's also the clinical chaplain there or the mental health person and also three or four peer support team members. So the toolbox has six tools in it instead of just one. And um, so they might not want to talk to me as a chaplain, but they might want to talk to this other officer who's been through a line of duty death and where their friend was murdered. And uh, that's another asset that the chaplaincy brought to the table but it wasn't, uh, wasn't necessarily the work of a chaplain, it was the work of a peer. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. It makes perfect sense because <laughs> the other piece of that is that while I may not be involved directly, one of the things that could be useful um, in that kind of a situation is to clue somebody else that can help them. Take Eric's situation. He's got a police officer in there. Uh, there needs to be somebody else involved. Maybe a mental health person is coming down, a social worker is coming down. I think it's very useful to help clue that person in about the parameters around which a police officer, a firefighter, or anything else uh, is kind of different in exposure than your average bear. So to clue those helpers in is the second tier of helping not only finding who they need, but then cluing those people in about what the situation is and what they need. And then I think I interrupted Misha. Well, and I, I think the other aspect of that question that you asked as well, Michael, is um, if someone wants to um, not accept the services, um, that's fine. Um, I think that ability for them to say no and to have um, voice to say who comes in their room, that's the biggest thing that that vulnerability that patients have, especially in a hospital context. Um, there is no privacy. Um, there is constant interruption and constant invasion of their body and their space. And so it might be that one moment where when the chaplain comes into that room and they say no and that chaplain says okay i'm here for support and if you change your mind this is how you can contact our services and walks out that might be that thing that that patient needed to gain some sense of self to say no to someone and that no be responded to um, in a positive way by saying, you know, I, I accept your no, but you know, I'm here for support if you need it. And whenever you change your mind, if you don't, that's fine. 
but to be able to walk out of that space and them be able to gain some sense of um, autonomy um, that their no means no, and they can still say that, and they can still have control of their space and their environment. One of the things that the, the Innovation Lab has been so um, passionate about is to build a, a common community of chaplaincy uh, because, Mishka, you know lots of hospital chaplains. Glenn, you know fire chaplains. Eric, you know police chaplains. What we would really like to see is more conversation across those sectors. Um, and so to get away a little bit from the, the specifics of the job, how do you, what sorts of professional development do you all do to stay up in your field? You know, what kind of contact do you have with other chaplains? What do your networks look like? So my network um, looks like, uh, again, friends who are chaplains in other contexts. I have a variety of friends that are military chaplains um, that serve in all different um, uh, aspects of the branches of military. Um, have close relationships with them. Um, professional um, uh, involvement with professional organizations. One of the organizations that I'm involved in as a clinical member is ACPE. Um, and so that is a way that I can stay in contact with other chaplains that are doing chaplaincy in various different um, aspects and, and contexts, whether it be, um, again, as CPE supervisors, um, uh, if they are doing um, other type of work with institutions, um, and um, having those types of networks that I'm involved in and actively involved in so that I can um, experience a different sense of chaplaincy from a variety of different aspects and, and iterations of it um, to have an appreciation for all of the aspects of uh, chaplaincy and how it's utilized. Go ahead, Glenn. One, one of the, uh, the side issues is, and, and it, would, it would change the shape of, the, of your subject a little bit, Mike, that is from skills about what we do to how we take care of ourselves as well as we do our jobs. And, and so there's a, a multiple level here. I have been continuously active. Uh, here in Indianapolis, we have uh, the uh, the uh, International Conference of uh, uh, Fire Instructors every year, which is 20 or 25,000 firefighter instructors coming in here. But we operate uh, the Federation of Fire Chaplains and the Indiana Fire Chaplains, which we meet on a quarterly basis uh, to, do, to, do, to do that kind of stuff. Plus, of course, the ACPE and the APC and all that kind of stuff. But I find the more intimate place is that in caring for myself and helping my students learn to care for themselves, because this is an expensive energy project, is to build a support team, and it could be nurses, it could be social workers, it could be mental health people, when they come around and they say, Glenn, are you doing okay? No. So it's it's a double, it's a I, I want to go in two different directions there. One is we need to build our awareness of the other people around us by being involved in community groups, ministry groups, 
federation groups, firefighter groups, whatever, um, ACP, APC, but the other issue there is meet on a regular basis so that we can see from each other how expensive this is and where we can get our own support for what we've experienced. I think that's where Eric was going to try to go. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, well, no, that's fine. I, uh, I think about that uh, over the years of doing this. And uh, so one, one part of the puzzle for me is I'm on the staff of a church as well. So I work full time for the state and then uh, I'm married to a Presbyterian minister. She's a senior pastor. I'm what's called a parish associate. So um, now I know that that's all work, but uh, it's also part of the way I balance my life that uh, all of my friends one of the great challenges for public safety is all their friends, their friend group becomes just public safety. Um, so uh, my friend group uh, includes uh, the folks in that parish where my wife's a pastor and I uh, assist on Sunday mornings. Um, I think I find great comfort, I mean, I know I do, find great comfort in uh, back to this peer piece. Uh, we're, our chaplaincy is very involved in the uh, coordination and the training of peer support team members. In other words, cops who help other police officers. And uh, uh, I find great comfort in talking with these peers myself um, because they, uh, they are very real people and have uh, stood at the gates of hell, uh, you know, for the sake of heaven, uh, so to speak. Um, you know, I think how how we manage our stress related to this work of chaplaincy for me is an emerging uh, project. I had an agent tell me one time 20 years ago, he said, uh, this work is like exposure to nuclear radiation. Uh, it, it, it doesn't feel like it hurts you very much in the daily doses you get of it, but over a career, it'll kill you. And uh, I think that's right. Got to manage it. Yeah, I, I think that self-care piece, um, to have those support circles um, there is, is essential. Um, for me, I, it's having peers that are available, but also having people who have no idea what chaplaincy is or um, who are not connected in any way with regards to the work of chaplaincy. Um, for me, I need that balance that I don't need to constantly always have conversation about the work that I do. I need to be able to separate um, and um, have that, that time where I can decompress and just be me, be a different aspect of not just my vocation, but my personality. Um, and so those support circles that are not associated with hospital work, are um, not associated with chaplaincy, that are not even associated with church, um, are, are wonderful to begin to cultivate those so that you can be um, attentive to every aspect of your self-care um, and to not always fall um, pray to wanting to be surrounded by um, those persons who are in the vocation because you can talk the language and you can have those constant conversations, but sometimes 
um, you need to have other conversations. And so I think that that's important as well, is to foster those other support circles that are not connected to the work that we do on a daily basis. You know, someone, uh, I'm, I'm conscious of the time here, so I want to uh, turn as much over to, the, to our attendees as possible for their questions. And someone asks a question that I think really gets to the heart of this and, and could be really useful. And that is really on a, on a granular level, what does peer support look like? I mean, are, are we just talking about talking your experiences through? Are we talking about just having a normal life that, that allows you to disconnect from all of that? Um, or is there secondary trauma education that you do? Are there other therapeutic modalities? Um, I, I, think that, I think that we can understand at a general level what it means to have a, a network of support around you, whether it's within the profession or without. But specifically, what does that support look like? I've got to confess at this point that I did not learn peer support at first within ministry. Um, in so many denominational settings, we're in competition with each other. I, I put that in quotes, competition. But my district superintendent said, um, so you, you're wanting to get off the ladder? And I said, yes. <laughs> but the issue there is, I began to learn in the fire department that when we came back from a bad run, whatever that bad run was, we got the coffee pot out and we sat around the table for however long it took for everybody to take care of each other before we got back on that engine again. Um, and I'm going, whoa, these guys are better at ministering to each other than I am in the ministry. So I began to put that together with ministry and we have, I have always participated in a situation where peer support not only is learning, but how at a spot where you can have a group in which you can be vulnerable and which they will know what is going on with you before you do sometimes um, in the fire service. And I'm, and I'm convinced that it's true in the police service. Sometimes we'll get referrals, not from the officers or from the firefighters. We'll get referrals from their family and say, John just isn't the same as he used to be. Well, sometimes I need to hear from my, my peer support means, people are going to say to me, you're not doing as well as you usually do. What's going on, Glenn? That's what peer support looks like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, Glenn brought up a, a great point of having um, uh, peers and uh, coworkers that will check in um, with each other, um, that getting to know each other, that um, being able to be attuned to your personalities. I think that that is imperative. I am um, one. I am thankful that I have that where um, I'm employed, where I can check in and others can check in with me and see how I'm doing. Um, uh, know some of the the personal um, struggles that I have or things that are on my mind, and I can touch base with them. Um, that. Um, is imperative to um, going through um, the struggles that sometimes chaplaincy can uh, can uh, uh, bring up, but also just day-to-day -day living, day-to-day um, -day challenges that will affect how you perform in your chaplaincy work. Um, and so being attentive um, 
being kind to yourself, understanding what that means and what that looks like. Like Glenn said, I didn't learn for a, a while to be attentive to uh, self-care and to really make that um, high on the priority list. Um, but you have to do it. You have to engage in it. Um, and you have to be vulnerable in order to invite people in who will tell you the truth um, and be able to accept it in the love that it's offered um, and journey through whatever that process is uh, for your restoration, your healing, and your comfort and your care. I, w I wanted to um, chime in on what's on uh, something Glenn said. I watch these uh, cops that I work with and, and uh, like so many of us, we're involved in the training of peer support teams, but you watch them and you realize they are, they are authentic human beings and, and can reach out and touch their peers in the police world um, in a way that um, it, it, um, it cuts through a lot of the uh, struggles we might have trying to form a relationship with them. So I, um, I, uh, I was just with these police officers in Florence and um, watching the peer team members from other agencies from other counties talk to them about their reactions to the murders of their friends and, and how they've been through that same uh, journey. It's not like exactly like theirs, but uh, the normalizing of their stress and their struggle, the, um, the, it's okay to seek these resources. And because those officers are telling the hurt officers uh, about it, it has a certain authority that might be very different than if I say it or the mental health person says it. Yeah. <laughs> Glenn, you mentioned um, coming back from a bad run and getting out the coffee pot and sitting around it until things, uh, at least in that debriefing moment, have been resolved to some extent. Obviously, these things are a little bit more long-term. Uh, but we do have one question that, that gets at a really concrete takeaway. I think this is a great question. Uh, and this person says, as a military chaplain, I work with service members who have been exposed to trauma. Uh, and this person would like each of you to share one post-trauma tool or technique that you have found to be particularly useful for people that have been exposed to some sort of traumatic event. So, a takeaway. When I also had a mental health license as part of my psychiatric team, and therefore I was covered as a therapist also, and since the military is the I want to go two directions there since the question came from a military person. One is police officers and fire people, and I've used it with civilians too, but particularly with firefighters. Um, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing was a non-talk kind of therapy that wasn't behavioral, but helped them, their brain process what they had been experiencing. Secondarily, uh, from the military side, but fire and police side as well, we're finally getting to the place where when we put in quotes behavioral health, my piece of that with a team, and I, uh, behavioral I have a problem with, but, but mental health in another aspect, if, if it's full, the chaplain seems to be the one who is able to connect all that's going on to how to connect that person 
to the meaning of the trauma that they've been exposed to rather than the behavioral aspects of what they've been exposed to. Yes. But as far as military is concerned right now, there's a great project going on. And I've been working with a couple other psychologists in the distance about that. But down in Texas, they're working on PTSD as soul injury. I think that's that's the connection between mental health and chaplaincy kind of stuff is that we're our the core meaning of us has been so disturbed that we can't attach to meaning anymore and that's where the chaplain gets in that's um, not necessarily religious spiritual glenn i'm glad you said that that was that that's my takeaway for that uh great question that was asked is to get to a point of existential meaning and purpose um, for uh, that particular person who's experienced trauma. Uh, one of the um, benefits we have here in the Chicago area, um, and there are three other locations throughout the uh, United States, um, is our Road Home program that is specific to military um, veterans who are experiencing PTSD, um, where there is um, a chaplain that is uh, with that particular program and other um, mental health uh, facility uh, personnel that's there uh, to support them in um, their need because their trauma is different. Um, they have some other aspects of trauma that uh, only someone who's a veteran would understand. And so they are surrounded by other veterans who are in the program. They're surrounded by a chaplain who has, um, who is a veteran as well, has been a veteran, um, and um, who's been in the military, I'm sorry. And uh, they can address that meaning and purpose that is specific to their military service. And so that's one of the resources that we have here. But if there's someone who comes off of the street into the emergency department, um, and I'm engaged with them for whatever period of time, um, it's to try and establish that um, meaning and purpose um, and understanding of what has happened in that event and how that is affecting their life and how they can use it to then um, move to a different place, um, the next step in their life. Um, my takeaway would be um, <clears throat> I'm very much a supporter of uh, EMDR. Uh, but my takeaway would be um, if you're involved in the peer support process in public safety, um, you learn uh, what, 10 or 12 uh, specific interventions, but everybody in that process knows the greatest challenge is gonna be the follow-up process uh, with those folks you meet in those crisis intervention situations. And um, uh, my great takeaway is we borrowed a program that the FBI created in 1983. It's called a post-critical incident seminar. And uh, we've been hosting that seminar in South Carolina uh, for the last 18 years. And it is an incredible three-day form of follow-up and intervention that, Glenn, it, in, it includes uh, uh, eight EMDR therapists every time we do it. We are, we are fortunate to have the good problem of having more questions being asked than we could possibly have time to answer. Uh, so I'll, I'm gonna relay one more on uh, before we wrap things up here. Um, we are conscious of the fact that the demographics of religious belief 
in the United States are changing very rapidly. Um, the demographics of those who are in religious leadership are also changing very rapidly. You know, just sort of the religious profile of the country is going to look much different 10 years from now than it did 10 years ago and before that. Uh, so one person asks, what advice do you have to offer someone who is transitioning out of a congregationally based ministry into chaplaincy or spiritual care outside of that? What is something that they should uh, anticipate being kind of a, a jarring experience or what barriers are they going to come up against right away? I'm going to be very biased here, Michael. I, uh, we can only see the first part of the question on our screen, so we don't see where it's going. We see the first phrase. But the first piece, uh, I think, is that it's, it's very, you get resistance when you're pulling out of the congregational experience if people love you in that process, whether they're congregants or fellow pastors or supervisors, or in my case, district superintendents who want to know why I want to do this. But, but the next thing is find a place where you can make that transition in a peer group like, and there's my bias, like clinical pastoral education to help you make that transition with other peers that are also making similar transitions, either professionally, personally, or religiously. Yeah, I think um, transitioning from pastoral um, parish ministry to chaplaincy, um, one of the things I think to guard against um, and to be attuned to and attentive to is um, some people, because they don't know uh, what chaplaincy is, might be, um, might not think you're actually doing ministry um, or might say that you're, you're not um, you're not in the thick of it. Um, and uh, to, yeah, to definitely surround yourself with um, other people who you can look to as mentors um, who are doing um, chaplaincy, who have been doing chaplaincy and some aspect of chaplaincy that you're, um, you're interested in so that you have that support, um, that you have that um, voice that validates um, your decision to move out of parish ministry into the context of chaplaincy, which is still ministry, it's just in a different context in a different way. You know, I can only add to that um, the, the need to um, pursue excellent training. Um, that's CPE. That's uh, uh, the kind of training Glenn's written a wonderful uh, curriculum on pastoral crisis intervention, that kind of training. But you really have to be conscientious in seeking the kind of training that's going to prepare you uh, to be whatever field of chaplaincy you're going to be in. There's a lot more training available for hospital chaplains um, than there is for public safety chaplains um, or casino chaplains or NASCAR chaplains. So um, I we're, we're working hard on the creation of a public safety chaplaincy training program at an ELCA seminary because such things just don't really exist, uh, at least uh, broadly across the country. Well, and uh, as a representative of the Chaplaincy Innovation Lab, I can assure you that we are very concerned about that too and are doing everything we can to make sure that that, that situation gets resolved in the future. 
Um, we are, we're going to have to wrap up here. We're, we're coming up against the clock, but I want to thank all of you uh, for being here today, uh, and not only for your conversation and for your contributions, but for the work that you do. Uh, it's so very important, and the people uh, whose lives you are in and the lives you touch um, are much better off, uh, even if they are in, in times of crisis. We are joined today by Mishka Smith, uh, who is a chaplain in the emergency department at Rush University Medical Center, Glenn Calkins, an ACPE supervisor, uh, who has done trauma chaplaincy in, it seems like, every other possible context and also deploys with the American Red Cross's disaster spiritual care teams. And Eric Skidmore, who is a law enforcement chaplain with the South Carolina Law Enforcement Assistant Program. Thank you all so much for your time and have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye-bye.